What's up, everyone? My name is Matt. Welcome to War Machine, a podcast for theological nomads. In this episode, Justin Pearl and I spoke with Pablo Sender, who is a representative of the Theosophical Society of North America. Uh, He's also a practitioner and something of a scholar of Madame Blavatsky, who was the founder of the Theosophical Society, uh, at least in its modern manifestation. He's written and spoken extensively on a number of theosophical-related topics. I'll link to where you can check out his work. I'll also provide a link to a couple of Blavatsky texts in case anyone wants to take a look at some of that. It's uh, pretty interesting stuff. In fact, Blavatsky is a pretty fascinating figure whose work in the field of esoteric philosophy has had a, a lasting influence on religious imagination and practice in the West. If you walk into your local you know, new age bookstore slash crystal shop, whatever you've got there, um, her fingerprints are all over that sort of stuff. Um, so, you know, even though she had a lot to do with popularizing uh, Eastern ideas, especially yoga and that sort of thing, uh, she still remains relatively unknown. And uh, to, to the extent that she is known, is something of a controversial figure. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, uh, but I want to remind y'all. Our friend Trip Fuller from Homebrewed Christianity is putting on a three-day event in North Carolina in October called Theology Beer Camp, where a whole bunch of theology nerds, podcasters, and speakers are going to get together to enjoy craft beer, talk theology, talk some shit, and generally just have a good time. Justin and I are going to be there doing some recording and hanging out, and we'd love to have you join us as part of the War Machine contingent which uh, I'm going to call the War Ensemble. So if you're a Slayer fan and or a listener of the show, we'll put the link in the show notes. Uh, Use the promo code WARMACHINE. That'll give you 50 bucks off the cost of admission. But wait, there's more. Justin and I are going to give you another 50 bucks back, either in cash or we'll Venmo you or whatever's easiest. So the cost of the event will end up being only $100. Uh, Not only that, but you'll be able to join some of our conversations, which are likely to make it on the podcast if all goes well. So I'll link to where you can find more information on all of that. Uh, Again, go to theologybeer.camp to learn more. Link is in the show notes. We're at warmachinepodcast.com. And here's Pablo Sender. Peace. How's it going? Good. How are you doing? Doing okay. Good to see you. Yeah, good to see you too. Um, I'm here in my office where I normally uh, give the talks, so I have this background there. But So uh, yeah, Justin's with us. He is on the phone because he's uh, traveling at the moment. Spoken. Hello. Yeah, I um, I apologize. My sound quality is not going to be super great today, so I'll uh, I'll leave I'll leave Matt for most of the interviewing. <laughs> All right, that's fine. Um, yeah, and I spoke with Petra. She said she was going to sit this one out because she thought there was enough people on on the call. <laughs> She's like, I don't want to cr- I don't want to crowd the room. I'm like, okay. I mean, I haven't seen you in months, but sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, you've been doing some traveling this summer. Yes, 
Uh, yes, I went to uh, Estonia, Finland and Sweden. For the most part, uh, in stayed in Finland. There is a Theosophical Center there and they had their summer convention, so I spoke there and then visited these other two countries and gave some talks there too. That sounds like an amazing gig, just flying around, talking to people who want to hear what you have to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I really enjoy it. Um, most of my work is, is uh, online, then here I live in a Theosophical Center, in a Theosophical community, so I gave some live classes here. And then about uh, twice a year I travel internationally, and then I travel also within the country here, whenever there is a convention or something like that, that they they want me to speak so uh, and I, I enjoy I, I always liked uh, education so I, I really enjoy doing this nice yeah well I, I know we're here to talk about theosophy and the theosophical society and Blavatsky and all that kind of stuff but I think I really just want to learn something more about you about your own background and how you got interested in theosophy and whatever else you're into that sort of thing I guess since I was a child I always felt that that life uh, wasn't really meaningful. Sometimes I would wake up and ask myself why I, I was waking up and I was 10, I think. Uh, so that pushed me to start reading some, some things that were not classical. Although I did read, so I had a grandpa that used to send me books like uh, Burns and Stevenson, all the classicals. But then uh, I started reading things about Atlantis, uh, UFOs, and things like that, that I found in my dad's library. My family was not into any of these. I don't know how those books were there, but, oh. and that led me to try to look into, you know, the meaning of life. So as I grew up as a teenager, I, I read some Western philosophers uh, and it was nice, but it, it didn't really, answer my questions, then I did some new age and also that seemed superficial. So eventually when I was 20, I, I ran into the, the Theosophical Society. My mom knew about it because she was going to yoga and her yoga teacher was a member of the society. So in a conversation, I was saying I, I wanted to find a group and then she took me there. First, I fell in love with the library. It, has all the, it had all the books that I wanted to read. And then when I saw the, the approach, it was a, an approach that was very much in line with how I am, I guess. I, I was at the time, I was 20, I was in college studying microbiology. Um, I was always interested in science and philosophy. And so when I decided what career to pursue, I thought I can study philosophy on my own, but science, I need the lab and I need more instruction. So I, I went- Yeah, and uh, possibly a day job. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that too. Uh, so uh, in the Theosophical Society, the idea is to look at the world from all these different perspectives, religious, philosophical and scientific, and see how they can help each other. They just look at life and the universe in different ways. Uh, that's what I was looking for. And the freedom of thought, there is mm. no dogma in the Theosophical Society. So uh, all that was just perfect for me. I'm definitely sympathetic to any approach that begins with the inextricability of, of science and religion and what often pass for different registers of existence uh, in our time. When you talk about the approach of theosophy, I guess I'm curious about not only the approach, but also the content, right? Because you said it's not dogmatic, but there's certainly 
it's doctrinal. I mean, she, right. She wrote the secret doctrine, unless, you know, that's just sort of a, a rhetorical ploy. I want to ask about that later, maybe, but like the other day, someone was asking me, I, I mentioned that I was talking to you and they're like, oh, so w- what is theosophy? I kind of struggle to uh, give a really concise response. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I know a little bit about, you know, the sort of spiritualist movement out of which it, out of which it came and, you know, riding the transcendentalist wave. And mm-hmm. I, I think I have a sort of basic grasp of some of the metaphysics going on, uh, but it's just a lot to try to summarize. So I don't know, maybe you can help us out with this here. In as few words as possible, what is theosophy? And maybe before you respond, if I could just add a little twist into this as well, I'd be really curious about how you understand the relation between like religious movements and the Theosophical Society, because at least in certain places, it seems like Blavatsky really wants to emphasize, I'm not making a new religion here. This is, this is something else that's happening. And so I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that as well. So that question, what is theosophy? All our members always struggle with because it's not easy to answer. Uh, and it, it's not easy to answer because the Theosophical Society is, is not a typical organization. Normally you have a spiritual teacher that teacher gives some teachings and then there is an organization around the teachings of that person. But uh, Blavatsky and the early theosophists didn't want to do that because they didn't want to form another sect, another religious movement. Uh, However, they did want to propose certain worldview to the world. So what we have in the society is these two things. There are teachings that we may consider theosophical Uh, let's call them given by members of the Theosophical Society, which is a particular worldview and with its metaphysics, its practice, etc. But that the promotion of the Theosophical teachings is not the only aim or not even the primary aim of the Theosophical Society. From the very beginning, there was an emphasis on the comparative studies uh, of religions, philosophies, science, trying to understand other Uh, religious uh, teachings and integrating all of this. So both things are in the in the Theosophical Society. And the main purpose is to bring people together from different uh, walks and different points of view, people who are interested in uh, the, the improvement of the world, you know, from mainly from a spiritual point of view. So in the Theosophical Society in America, for example, we have people in the staff that belong to different religions that, of course, they are familiar with the theosophical teachings because they are in the organization, but they don't study theosophical teachings in particular. Uh, And then we have people whose main interest is the theosophical teachings. So to answer the question, what is theosophy? I normally refer to the root of the word. Uh, Theosophia means divine wisdom. So a theosophical teaching in, in our tradition is any teaching that comes from a, an inner wisdom, a, a wisdom that is divine, meaning not a wisdom that comes merely from, from experience and from intellectual endeavors. Uh, there is the possibility of this gnosis, as the Christians would call it, uh, and any person that can uh, touch that inner wisdom many times informed and sustained by an intellectual knowledge. But the theosophical teaching is the one that comes from that inner wisdom. And in that definition, which Blavatsky gave, um, theosophists are any um, sages in the world, in any religion and culture, who are speaking from that wisdom. 
uh, in a more narrow way, uh, theosophy can be seen as a body of teachings uh, produced by members of the Theosophical Society. So we have these two different uh, definitions. Perhaps it's similar to the idea of gnosis and knowledge. Um, and, you know, that's how I would define it. I had a friend who would occasionally reference theosophy. I don't think it was like a big part of his intellectual diet, so to speak. But I remember ha having conversations with him and him more or less making claims to secret knowledge. And like, listen, I'm all for secret knowledge in the sense that I think there are things you can't know unless you're initiated, right? But I remember accusing him of being a Gnostic. And he was like, yeah. <laughs> or do you consider yourself a Gnostic? Not probably in that way. The, the, the theosophical knowledge that I'm talking about, for example, in that definition, in the definition of theosophy as a divine wisdom, I don't even consider myself a theosophist mm -hmm. in the sense that uh, in that high definition, uh, only those people who have some real level of, of spiritual enlightenment are true theosophists. You know, normally what we do, we see life, we try to understand it, and we start thinking about it. And of course, we may have insights that come beyond the mind. Uh, but normally, this is why so many philosophical traditions have completely different answers for the same problems. It's because we try to figure out an answer, an explanation, using our reason, etc. What Blavatsky said, for example, that um, most of her knowledge was gained in meditation in higher states of consciousness. And if you read Plotinus, uh, he would talk about also his realizations in these higher states of consciousness or in India, the Samadhi and all this. So that's what I would call theosophy as something that comes from that divine wisdom that is latent in all of us. But there is a practice, a, a lifestyle that is necessary to begin to be in touch with it. So part of what the theosophical tradition proposes is a worldview, a lifestyle that can help you get more and more in touch with that divine wisdom and produce a transformation in your personality. You're not a practitioner then? I am a practitioner, oh. but I... I practice quite seriously and I have, a, I think, a good grasp of theosophical teachings, but I don't consider myself uh, an enlightened person. But, you know, today enlightenment is used in, in a very, yeah. you know, vague way. Or in the theosophical tradition, we have a very high idea of what enlightenment means. And I cannot claim that I have that. Well, it's a funny thing, right? Because anyone who is enlightened probably doesn't go around saying, I'm enlightened, you know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah, you, might, you might have something going for you, I don't know. <laughs> no, but that, that is an attitude that is also important. Today, everybody advertised themselves as being this or that. In general, in the theosophical tradition, except for, you know, the leaders of the theosophical movement that needed to say, hey, we are talking about something that we know by direct perception, you know, then you may believe or not. But except for that, uh, in the theosophical tradition, we don't go making claims or anything. We offer whatever we have and then let people take it or not, you know, not, not playing with a, the authority card. Yeah, this is one of the things I, I guess I've sort of struggled with. And, and maybe this is kind of to the point you were making, right, that it's, a, I, I guess, more of a method, more of an approach than mm -hmm. it is a, um, a set of propositions or anything like this. Because I've really struggled to like figure out, all right, what is the content? The content of the theosophical teachings, let's say. Yeah. Well, even in that, there is some fluidity. If you see, if we are to believe 
people like Blavatsky, that they are perceiving things in a state of consciousness that is beyond the realm of reason. And that then when they come back to their normal state of consciousness, they have to formulate all this in words. Yeah. So if we are going to believe them, uh, then it is natural that a perception that is beyond concepts, when each person tries to formulate it, it will be formulated in different ways. Uh, so within the theosophical tradition, we have different formulations of what we could call theosophy. In, in all the major features, they are the same, but there are many differences, uh, so much that some theosophies don't regard some theosophical teachers as, you know, speaking about uh, really theosophy. Oh, yeah. That sounds a yeah. lot like uh, Christianity too. Like, oh, you're not, you're not really a Christian. We're the real Christians. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that doesn't happen so much in the Theosophical Society because it is based on freedom of thought. But you always have people who have a more dogmatic tendency, and they will make these declarations. Uh, only what Blavatsky said is true to Theosophy, although Blavatsky denied that view of Theosophy many times. But in any case, the content basically there is always concern about how the cosmos came about, not just physically, you know, in the secret doctrine, we have these two volumes, cosmogenesis and anthropogenesis. So Blavatsky postulates a world that is manifested from the spiritual realms into the material realm, always following universal laws, some of which science knows about, but there are also laws on other non-physical planes. She always emphasized that the spiritual is not lawless and whimsical or miraculous. There are laws on all the planes, it's just that we don't know those laws. And what she was trying to postulate is that there is fundamentally a purpose for the manifestation of the universe. And the purpose is the evolution of consciousness. And there are many laws in the East, for example, they call karma. Uh, there are many laws that are regulating the human experience with the specific purpose of promoting the evolution of consciousness and matter also. Uh, when Blavatsky describes the formation of the cosmos, uh, that is the idea at the background, to show that this is part of a divine plan, but not by Blavatsky was always very much against an anthropomorphic God. The divine mind for Blavatsky was this intelligence that is in nature and beyond nature too, on, on all planes. Uh, intelligence is in the very fabric of the universe. Uh, it's not a being that is directing this, but the, this intelligence permeating everything uh, is the divine mind. And that intelligence manifests as thought. In a plant, it manifests as the ability to go toward the light. And in celestial beings, it manifests in different ways. That intelligence is the logos or the divine mind. So there is all this aspect of cosmogenesis. And then, of course, there is the question of how human beings came to, to be and uh, the process of evolution through which we go with different evolutionary cycles in which different aspects of our nature evolves. So that's normally a, a big concern of the theosophical teachings. Uh, then another aspect is the um, Blavatsky postulated that there is this like perennial uh, wisdom, this Prisca theologia, as it was called, you know, and that all spiritual movements come from, uh, from that wisdom. So part of the content of theosophical literature is to try to look at religions as they are today 
and see if uh, we can see the, the commonality. So obviously religions are different, but uh, at the same time, there are many commonalities because these are universal truths. Not everything that every religion says is common or is even the truth because religions are affected by history. But what she claims is that originally each religion is expressing some universal truth, not necessarily all the same. Uh, so part of the theosophical tradition is to try to find these universal truths in all religions. And the, one of the aims is to promote uh, religious tolerance and uh, to fight exclusivism and all of this that ca causes so much suffering in humanity. Mm. And the third element that I would mention is the one that is concerned with the spiritual life itself, how to lead a good life, you know, a good in the sense of Plato, I guess, uh, which all members are free to adopt or not. But there is always a concern of what is an ethical life, what is a spiritual life, uh, how can we live so that our spiritual nature manifests more through us. So I would say those are probably the main uh, the main fields, but the literature itself is huge. So there there is yeah. much more than that. I was thinking when you were glossing the uh, the secret doctrine, right? Talking about the the two main areas of interest there of cosmological origins and anthropological origins. But I think it does connect in a an important way to the perennialist thrust of theosophy, right? Because I mean, I have to admit, whenever I hear perennialism invoked, I, I, I have mixed feelings about it because I'm certainly no less susceptible to the allure of the one than anyone else. Um, but I, I think it sometimes can not just recognize differences, but end up effacing differences in favor of this need for an origin or an essence or a pure identity, right? Some, some pure ground, something like that. You know, like, like I said before, I, I do believe there are things that remain hidden to the uninitiated, but I also get very skeptical of anyone making uh, mm -hmm. the claim that they have access to, you know, some sort of universal code that precedes and exceeds all traditions. It's, and I don't know if this is something that's come up for you before. When I was reading some of the, the secret doctrine, I didn't get through all of it, by the way, it's a million pages. Yeah, I know. <laughs> People it's, do. It's, it's ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, I found myself being uncharitable at times as I was reading it. And then I started to give a more charitable reading, which was reading Blavatsky as more of like a, a syncretist mm -hmm. than a perennialist. Cause I think that's just a better way for me to interpret what's going on and accept it on its own terms. And when she makes all these appeals to like ancient texts and original sources that are hidden under, under the desert and stuff like all this stuff, it just makes me smile. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm aware of the, the criticisms uh, against perennialism. And I think I would differentiate if we want to call it perennialism, the, the one, how it is done in the Theosophical Society and how it was done later in the 20th century by a group of philosophers, mm -hmm. because they do tend to, as you said, to uh, erase differences, etc., which is never the intention in the Theosophical tradition. And there are explicit texts about the value of uh, diversity and, and variety. One of the main subjects in theosophy is, is the essential unity. And then as important as that is the importance of variety. And this is why uh, sometimes theosophical teachings have been accused of uh, racism and things like that, because from the very beginning, 
there was never this attempt at, to say all human beings are the same, we are all the same, men and women are the same, people from different ethnicities are the same. In the theosophical view, that is not true. In manifestation, we are all different. We are different manifestations of an essential unity. Um, because when you have something that is infinite in its formless uh, state, if you want to manifest something that is infinite in finite forms, then you do it by manifesting infinite varieties. You know, every manifestation is an aspect of the absolute reality. And because the cosmos is there for evolution, each different form is a different experience that the soul needs. So uh, many times the different ethnicities would be presented as having their own uh, strengths and weaknesses. Typically, Eastern ethnicities tended to be better at spiritual approaches and not so good at intellectual, or I don't know, the, the Latin ethnicities more emphasize more the, the emotion and the, the community and not so good at this or that. And there is a recognition that all that is necessary and is perfectly fine. And same with religions. There is always the idea that religions need to be different we are not expecting a homogeneous religion because the aspects of truth are infinite and because each human being is different and we need different paths. So I see that in, in philosophy, perennialism tended to go to a homogenization of everything. And in theosophy, there is the value of differences, but with the background of the essential unity that brings us all together behind. Yeah. No, it's interesting. It gets to a, maybe not a tension, but just a, a, something I couldn't quite put my finger on in terms of the underlying metaphysics. Like in some places, Blavatsky's work very much reads like a Neoplatonism. In other times, it feels like a sort of um, like an expressionism. And I think the difference between emanation and expressionism, I think is important. But anyway, that's one of the things I want to ask you about is um, it was only about 20 or 30 pages in I started picking up on the, there's a particular style of writing at late 19th century, little Baroque, you know, I'm a sucker for that sort of thing. But then some of the themes started reminding me of something that was familiar and I, I wasn't sure what it was. I couldn't put my finger on it. And then she starts talking about and referencing this rare ancient mystical book and that there's only one copy, right? The book of Dizan. And I was like, oh my God, this could just as well be a description of the Necronomicon. Mm -hmm. it, I was just picking up all of these Lovecraftian yeah. um strategies and tropes and stuff like this so I, I started looking into it and sure enough turns out she was a huge influence on on Lovecraft mm, and he yes. based a lot of based a lot of his um his writing on what yes. she did I don't know it was just interesting for me to kind of trace that lineage out a little bit further and I guess for me it kind of speaks to Blavatsky's like skill as an author and as, a, as just a creative person putting aside whether you think she's a charlatan or whatever, that half of what she's writing is, you know, just a product of her imagination. Like, even if you accept that, then you have to accept that she's kind of a genius mm -hmm. in the way that she brought together all these different kinds of traditions and synthesized them in this unique way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, there are actually letters between several writers of the weird tales and all that, where they were telling each other, it's not that they believed what the secret doctrine said, but they were telling each other, have you read the secret doctrine? There is, that's a, such a great source of imagery for our tales. So they, they were influenced uh, by that, but I don't think they believe in any way that that could be true. Um, now, Blavatsky, in the, in the introduction to the secret doctrine, she says exactly what you just said. She said, 
you know, I know that scholars are not going to be able to take this seriously, basically because I cannot produce my sources. This book that I'm talking about, I cannot produce it, so I expect that the scholars uh, won't take it seriously. Uh, but then they will have to say either she has some source that she is uh, putting forth to the world, or she herself was a genius. And she says, and I'm not no genius. So, you know, that, that she, she understood that, you know, that situation. And she was always very frank in that she never expected her to be accepted by scholars. And because I was, you know, raised in the academia also, I understand why all her claims, you know, wh why would you believe what a random person Blavatsky said that you, you will believe that that is true versus some other people that may tell you I was taken by a UFO and now I'm this or that. I understand that. I think, you know, in my personal life, because I take seriously the teachings with a critical mind too, you know, all good theosophists have a critical mind because we like the freedom of thought and thinking about things and not just believing. But I have tried to look at the world in the way that she proposed and work in medi even you know in meditation and and phenomena that she described in books uh, almost 150 years ago a uh, uh, phenomenon of consciousness i uh, you know i saw that what she wrote is true by my personal experience uh, again i have a very limited experience but i have enough to give you something very concrete she describes a sequence of sounds you know, if you practice meditation, you start listening exactly that sequence. And these are not imagination. In fact, by accident, I realized that I was hearing those sounds. I, be, I had been meditating for many years. One day I decided to put earplugs because it, it was a little noisy. And then all of a sudden I realized that I was listening all these sounds that I never sought, I never cared about, but because I had read one of her books, The, the Voice of the Silence, where she describes these sounds, I realized, wait, these are the sounds that she's describing and started paying attention. And I heard a few of them in exactly the, se the sequence she mentions. And like that, a few other things, you know, I'm, I'm not psychic, I'm very, you know, intellectual, I think um, I, I never really care much about psychism, but, um, you know, inevitably certain, certain practices allow you to start perceiving certain realities that to me, I, I approach this as a scientist and I try to see if these things are just conditioning, but they seem to be independent phenomena from myself. In this book, The Voice of the Silence, she says that there are seven sounds that one hears, you know, as one approaches um, the, your true nature, spiritual nature, let's say. So the first one she says is like the nightingale. And um, uh, and then she talks about, you know, like some symbols, like ting, you know, things like this. And then she talks about like a, the sound of a conch, you know, when you blow it. And, and there are different sounds. I, I studied, for example, I had never heard a, a nightingale. I went to the internet, Google nightingale, and it was really close to what I was uh, hearing. Um, then I started paying attention for a while to, the, to that. I could hear three or four of the sounds. Um, to me, it was interesting to see that there must be some phenomena that she was describing. Not necessarily that everything she described is right. I'm just saying I've seen that there is some phenomena that happens in consciousness.
Now, in her writings, she says that her knowledge of religions is not systematic, that in her travels, she learned from different, you know, religious teachers that she encountered, oral teachings. It's not that she studied the, the texts, the tradition. And she, when there was a criticism of what she was writing, she says, I don't claim to be a scholar of religions. What I was trained in is what she called the esoteric philosophy that she claimed was taught to her by these yogis in Tibet that she, that she found. Uh, and she says, the idea is that, uh, as I mentioned, you know, I, I gave a talk on this in, in Harvard, the Center for Religious Studies organized a Congress and they invited the Theosophical Society in America to participate. And I was one of the speakers. And what I was explaining there is that in Blavatsky's view, the spiritual truths are like what we may call mathematical truths. Uh, people in different parts of the world and in different times, if they start working in that direction, they will discover certain mathematical truths. So she said anybody around the world in different times, uh, if they start working spiritually, they will come to certain spiritual truths. Uh, now, when they teach these things to to their peers, they are in the, in the particular community that they are teaching, they have to figure out how to teach, what to emphasize, they may perceive different aspects of truth. But in time, there are these enlightened beings, she claimed, that keep a record of those original teachings that they themselves can access. In the Secret Doctrine, she said, these enlightened beings are like kind of like the scientists they go and they verify all these teachings. And she was taught part of this uh, ancient wisdom, esoteric philosophy, she would uh, call it, from which she says also religions came. And theosophy, she never claimed the theosophical teachings are the full revelation of the esoteric philosophy at all. She says this is only the tip of the veil uh, because most of these teachings can only be understood in higher states of consciousness, which I know it sounds, as you say, elitist or something, but you know, that's what she proposed. And she said, but these teachings can be beneficial for humanity. So when she quoted other religions, her motivation was to support her claim that there is an ancient wisdom in all of them. But many times she quoted other religions following the uh, misconceptions of the scholars at the time. Uh, as she says, sometimes I was in India and I would ask a person, she would say, I know this concept from the esoteric philosophy in which I was trained. What's this concept, something similar in Hinduism? And people around would tell her, oh, that sounds like Mula Prakriti, for example. So then she would write. So this, you know, root substance is like the Mula Prakriti in Hinduism. And many times those references were wrong and she recognized that. And she said, you know, bottom line, the only claim I can make is that I, I know a little of this esoteric philosophy. So her syncretism, from her point of view, it was just an illustration basis, and also to support the idea that there was a common wisdom in the different religions. Uh, she favored Eastern religions. She did think that India had, when she traced the movement of the esoteric philosophy, she said it began in India, then it moved to the Middle East and to Egypt, and from Egypt it went to Greece and Rome. 
So she says, uh, in our current civilization, these teachings originated in India. That's what she would postulate. I have not really studied if this, you know, transmission is real or not. I haven't read anything from scholars on this. Uh, but she identified herself as a Buddhist, and she thought that Buddhism was closer mm -hmm. to the esoteric philosophy than even Hinduism was. So, but she favored Hinduism and Buddhism as being more or less the source of these teachings. I, I know that she talked about theosophy as Buddhism without the trappings, right? And I wonder if she similarly considers Buddhism is Hinduism without the trappings. <laughs> so I think, I think that is a common. Yeah, I think it, it, that, that is part of it. Uh, again, you have to read the whole of Blavatsky's language was very uh, idiosyncratic. So she would say that she's a Buddhist, uh, but then she believed in Atman, in a universal self. Uh, and then when criticized about that, she would say, well, when I say that I, uh, I'm a Buddhist, I don't mean that I belong to one of the, the Buddhist schools that, uh, you know, that are out there in humanity. It's just that my teachers claim that they follow the original teachings of the Buddha, and then that's what I learned from them. Yeah. So there is all this idea that I know is problematic. What do we know that Jesus really taught, or the Buddha, or or any of these teachers that didn't really write? We, this is why we have the Westar Institute. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> just to shout out our partners. Yeah. So go ahead. How how do you approach this? So the Westar Institute, they're kind of well known for a seminar that they conducted in the '60s that brought together a lot of Christian scholars, theologians, biblical scholars, and so on to get a handle on the quote unquote historical Jesus, right? And they would they would go through the red letters in the text and be like, all right, what do we think about this? Did he say this or not? And then they would vote. <laughs> yeah, well, I think Blavatsky, she, for example, she said that the real Jesus lived a hundred years before we think. Again, immediately you say, okay, what are your sources? And then the sources that she can provide are unacceptable, you know, in a scholarly uh, environment. Yeah. yeah. He says, well, uh, you can see it in the Akashi records. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah tune but, in. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, but she would say that, you know, if you see in the gospels, the disciples were surprised that Jesus was speaking in parables, which means that Jesus was telling them something substantially different so that they were surprised what Jesus was telling the masses which, you know, why are you speaking to people in this way? Uh, and Jesus said, to you are given the secrets of the kingdom of heaven or whatever he said, uh, but to the people we teach in parables. A again, I know that this, uh, from a certain point of view, is elitist, uh, but the idea is that all these spiritual teachers, certain things could not be taught, not out of any pride or it's just that the truth were too metaphysical for people to understand them correctly. Uh, so there is always this idea in Blavatsky of the esoteric and the exoteric. And uh, she was trying to reveal part of the esoteric. And sometimes she had, had to defend why secrecy. She wrote an article about that. And she would say, you know, all these teachings can backfire. So you have to be very careful in, in giving, uh, you know, we live in a, in a world where we say, well, I have the right to know if there is something to be known. But uh, if certain teachings, you know, even the idea of the, the root races and all that in theosophy were misapplied by the Nazis and all that, I don't know 
to what extent they were really aware of the theosophical teachings that is in debate. But you see, if you look at this idea of the races, without the background of the universal brotherhood, without the background of, of unity, without a good heart where you want, where, where you love humanity, well, all these teachings can be used to, you know, to produce what, what racism produces. So yeah. that's a problem with, with, with Blavatsky when she claims I'm a Buddhist and she claims uh, I'm a Buddhist in the original teachings that the Buddha gave, but that were lost in time. Yeah. Again, it gets back to this need to appeal to original source. And I, you, you brought up Nazism and I, I wasn't really going to go there, but like we've already mentioned Lovecraft, who was a raging racist and um, who was also influenced by Nietzsche. And of course, Nietzsche was appropriated or rather misappropriated by, by the Nazi party. I could easily see, you know, if I'm Hitler sitting in my reclining in my, in my chair and I've got a stack of books next to me, Nietzsche, Lovecraft, and Blavatsky, I could easily see a formula there for where he ended up. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, um, Blavatsky used, for example, the word Aryan for the current civilization, because that was the word used by scholars, what they are called now Indo-European they used to call Aryan. The, the problem is that with scholarship, you stop reading the early documents so you can change the language. And today, probably most people don't know that when they read Indo-European, they used to call it Aryan. But with the Theosophical Society, we keep reading the, the books that Blavatsky wrote, and it's not easy to change the language because you don't have control over all the editions. But when she explained Aryanism, following the scholars, Arianism included India, included the Middle East, included the Semitic uh, races. So if the Nazis used the idea of, of Arianism in the way they used it, uh, it definitely didn't come from what Blavatsky said. But the whole idea of different root races and all that is very easily, as you say, misapplied. And Blavatsky's teachers, you know, they were not white. Most of them were Indian or Tibetan. There were some Europeans, she said. But yes, all this is very easily misapplied. And that's why some teachers are supposed to be wary about how much to say. I think there's a, an important sense in which the, there's an optimism to her work. You know, it's that kind of classic pre-World War One. Uh, optimism about the perfectibility of all humans, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that in kind of a post-World War One, post-World War Two world, a post-Holocaust world, the idea of the perfectibility of the human is something that I think we sort of instinctively are repelled by that kind of language because mm -hmm. it has these, you know, eugenic. It sounds that way to us, uh, and so I think part of maybe kind of contemporary discomfort with her might come from that like very 19th century optimistic humans are going to evolve we're going to become something more perfect that sort of language yeah 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 that's still very very much uh, an important part in theosophy not necessarily physically that's the problem you know how a theosophist reads these teachings and how a, a scholar uh, is many times different in the sense that when we hear about the perfectibility of human beings we are thinking primarily spiritually I mean, also physically, she said that the physical human body will continue to change, you know, in millions of years in the future, etc. But uh, th since that is a natural process so slow, we are not really interested in that. 
uh, when thinking about the perfection of human being is as a Christ or, or a Buddha, you know, a, a human being perfect in wisdom, in compassion, etc. And yes, that is essential, I would say, to theosophy. But there are certain things that happen in history by which even the use of the swastika, Blavatsky used the swastika before the Hitler was born, uh, but that is used in such negative ways that then that becomes a, yeah. a problem. It's a shame too, because I think the swastika in its original meaning is a quite a beautiful symbol and it's mm -hmm. just been completely fucking corrupted. You can't use it anymore. You know, it's like, it's, it's Hitler's mustache. You can't have that mustache anymore. Yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And you know, in, in Hinduism, the swastika means like well-being. Uh, when I was, I lived in India for uh, two years and people paint the swastika in the front of their houses because it's a sign of good luck. And they still use it, of course, Hinduism, Buddhism, Jainism. Uh, but then in the West, th those things become, as you say, like Hitler's mustache, they become a symbol of something completely different. Although Blavatsky wasn't shy to use symbols that, that were vilified, I think she had a com this, well, we know she had this combative nature. Yes, very polemical. I like it when she gets polemical. She gets very catty. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and for example, when she was in, in, in England, she created this uh, Theosophical Journal and she put the name Lucifer to the journal. And in the first article that is called What's in a Name, she puts all the reactions of people who would come to her, she would say, uh, for example, a theosophist would come to her and say, oh, I heard you are going to start a new magazine. And Blavatsky says, yes. Uh, what's the name? Uh, Lucifer. And then she says all the reactions of the theosophists to, to the name. Uh, and she put it Lucifer anyway. Of course, after she died, that name was changed. Uh, but she said Lucifer traditionally was a savior figure like Jesus. But then Christianity, fighting paganism and all that, began to associate the name Lucifer with Satan. Uh, it's just like if a new religion, now they start calling Jesus, uh, using the name of Jesus for Satan. The Zoroastrians did this with Hinduism. In Hinduism, devas are the gods and devas in Zoroastrianism are the demons. So she just um, had no problem trying to rescue this what she thought were earlier sacred symbols and put it in your face. Um, you know, when she was alive, maybe that worked to some extent. I don't think we can afford to do that now. That reminds me of the way that like the, um, the early punk movement used to reappropriate symbols and juxtapose them in ways to be intentionally provocative. So, you know, there would be things like a swastika next to, you know, a star of David next to a hammer and sickle, yeah, for example, yeah. right? And it was this idea of, of undermining all of these different ideologies by juxtaposing them in a sort of chaotic way. Uh, yeah. I think there's a little bit of that kind of proto-punk energy in, in Blavatsky, particularly yeah. when she gets polemical. I, I love that idea. I love. I want to pick up on that because I think that really connects to the tremendous influence she's had on all kinds of things. You see her influence in popular culture. I think there's a decent argument to be made that there wouldn't even have been a new age movement without her. Mm -hmm. um, maybe that's something you can talk about is just the sort of cultural legacy and influence of Blavatsky. Like, where does she pop up today? Uh, where do you see her popping up in media, in religious imagination and stuff like that? Yeah. Yes. Um, I've seen her mentioned in a few TV shows, I think in one of the episodes of Sherlock, 
Um, I posted that on Facebook in, and every now and then in some TV show when they want to talk about some mysterious character and she's a woman now, so that is great now, you know, you, you show a woman that is a mysterious character that was influential. So sometimes they mentioned uh, Blavatsky, but I think most of her influences, uh, uh, most of the people that are influenced by Blavatsky, they don't know that they are influenced by them yeah, in, this, yeah. in the new age. Uh, she was the first one in, in the West in talking about yoga and meditation and chakras and uh, many of the terms, the, this term Akashic Records that everybody uses in ways that are completely different from the Theosophical view. But this phrase Akashic Record was coined by her and many other, uh, when you talk about the Lemuria as being one earlier civilization to the Atlantis, that's, that was also coined by her. Of course, not Atl Atlantis, because Plato talked about that. Uh, and many, many things that uh, were really uh, brought up by her and picked by many of the early movements in the 20th century, in the early 20th century, they were all former theosophists. So they continue to use many of the names and terms and approaches from Blavatsky and and it's pervasive, it's really pervasive. But what is not pervasive is the approach. You know, in the Theosophical Society, we don't attract masses of people. And it's mainly because the, the New Age spirituality, it, from the Theosophical point of view, you know, this others can see differently, but from our point of view, uh, it's not quite spiritual, it's a form of spiritual materialism, because it's all about yourself, it's all about fulfilling your desires, uh, you know, but maybe by non-physical means, but that doesn't make it spiritual. Uh, the theosophical tradition is more about, you know, moving beyond the selfish desires and the emotional reactions and the mental biases and, and working on yourself and working hard on yourself. Most people don't want to hear that. Um, so the teachings are taken, but they are used many times in the opposite way that than Blavatsky proposed them. Uh, you know, basically we are seeking to transcend the personal ego and in the new age it's all to gratify the personal ego, or at least that's how a theosophist would perceive it. Yeah, no, as someone who uh, dips in and out of uh, those kinds of spaces, I think, that's a, I think that's a fair assessment. So we've been talking for about an hour. I want to get to some listener questions. Justin, do you want, do you want to add anything before we get to that? No, 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 go to, go to listener questions. That sounds perfect. All right, cool. So I've got, how many do I have? Oh, there's only four. Okay, so, all right. David Berger asks, what was Blavatsky's relationship with the Russian revolutionaries? When she went to India, she was accused of being a Russian spy. Uh, the, the Theosophical Society ruffled many feathers there. First, they, they started trying to stimulate Indian nationalism. Uh, so the British uh, government in India was not happy about that. And also they were trying to stimulate the, the native religions there, Hinduism, Buddhism, and all the Christians and the, the Christianization of the East was very much uh, you know, reacting to that. And she was accused of being a Russian spy. She had people following her. And of course, she always denied that, as far as we know. She didn't participate in, in, a, in the Russian Revolution. She did participate in Italy in one of Garibaldi's battles in Montana. Uh, so she, I think she had a, a more socialist uh, leaning 
although she was very much against uh, politics. She said in the TS, we can talk about anything uh, except for politics. Uh, so, but she had, I think, more of a socialist uh, leaning, but no, I, I haven't read anything that she participated in, in any, you know, movement in Russia. Yeah, that's interesting. That's a whole nother conversation I'd, I'd love to have with either you or just in general, just mm -hmm. um, how occultism overlaps with politics, whether leftist or otherwise, mm -hmm. <laughs> especially, yeah. especially these days. Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, so let's see, Randy Dibble. I don't know if I'm saying that right. It's either Dibble or Dibble. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. He says- It's Dibble. Uh, it's Dibble, great. So Randy Dibble says, I wish the scholarship on theosophy was more integrated with philosophy. Steiner brings it all into closer proximity and the pre-Blavatsky Christian theosophy of late German idealism is just as mystical, mm -hmm. but Blavatsky's synthesis represents a significant break with the earlier tradition. So I guess there's not a question there, but you know, I mean, what, yeah. what, do you think, what do you think about that? Yeah, Blavatsky uh, had uh, Jacob Böhme in you know in hard, uh, high regard and um, huge influence on Hegel. Yeah, 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 yeah. She was very much as anybody who reads Blavatsky will easily see very much against the Christian Church, the Christian organization. But not so about the teachings. She wrote, for example, the commentary on Pisti Sophia, the Gnostic text. And she also wrote a series of articles on the esoteric uh, meaning of the Gospels. Uh, it's called the esoteric character of the Gospels, I think. And she appreciated Beme and um, and some of the early theosophers, you know, in the 17th century and all that. And she also mentioned Swedenborg. Uh, there is value in in looking at what they were doing. Blavatsky never claimed that she was coming from the, the theosophers, uh, you know, in, in the 1700s or so. She said that the Theosophical Society was a reincarnation of the Neoplatonic school. If you read the Kichu Theosophy, the first chapter, she talks about how she's trying to do very similar things that uh, Plotinus and all of them were trying to do uh, in the Neoplatonic movement. And she says that they are the ones who coined the, the, the word theosophy. And she takes more on the approach, the Greek approach, more than the Christian approach of these uh, theosophers. But she, she appreciated them. And I think that's, yeah, that would be great to integrate it. Mentioning those, those uh, earlier Christian theosophy folks, um, their biggest influence was the Lurian Kabbalah movement. And so I was, I was wondering, one uh, group that hasn't come up much in this conversation uh, would be Jewish influence. And I, I was curious if there's Jewish influence or, or maybe more particularly um, Kabbalistic influence on Blavatsky at all. Mm -hmm. Yes, she certainly knew some Kabbalah, uh, probably. I, 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 yeah, if I remember correctly, she said that she studied with a rabbi. Um, there have been some studies about Blavatsky's Kabbalah and as it is the case with, with uh, most religions, you know, there are things that are accepted popularly and some other things that either they are mistakes or they are very idiosyncratic of her. I, I have the impression that today we have a far more systematized religion, but Blavatsky was learning from orally from individual teachers who probably they, they themselves had different beliefs from what the you know there was not necessarily i i suppose and i haven't studied this in depth but there was less of this tradition 
to which most uh, people uh, you know or agree with but anyway blavatsky mentions the kabbalah in the secret doctrine in several ways she thought that this was uh, a real uh, esoteric teaching and um, to what extent she knew kabbalah as i said there are studies on this uh, the, the, all the generals, she's always, she's quite right, but then there are some interpretations that uh, Kabbalists normally don't agree with. Yeah, she, it was not necessarily one of the main influences on, on her, I would say, but it's definitely there. And in some important teachings, she, she used Adam Kadmon, you know, she mentioned, she uses the tree of life when talking about cosmic processes. Uh, so she definitely uses Kabbalah. All right, so we've got two more questions. So Emery Jones says, you've got to dive deep into the Ascended Masters, the Great White Brotherhood, and the development of this notion from the work of, I'm not, I'm not going to say this right, Carl von Eckhart Schausen and oh. his Cloud Upon the Sanctuary. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. All, all roads in the modern occult revival point back to this guy, and I doubt most people know his name. Uh, any thoughts on any of that? Yes. Um, well, I don't know if I, I, I learned the pronunciation in Spanish. I call it call him uh, Eckhart Hausen. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's the correct German pronunciation. Uh, she mentions him. I read not the whole book, but um, I, I have read you know a good amount of the book. The, the problem is that all these texts, if if Blavatsky's texts are obscure all these other books are you know <laughs> obscurer let's say so it's not it's not easy to understand what their point is beyond this general sense of mysticism and and blavatsky mentions him um again i don't think on her these were the bigger influences the bigger influences on her seem to be the neoplatonists yeah. um, buddhism and hinduism but she acknowledges them and she uh, thinks that they were part of the, the, the current, uh, the esoteric currents during the Middle Ages, you know, yeah. uh, that, that formed this link. Well, what is, the, what is this thing, the Ascended Masters and Great White Brotherhood? I, yeah. I, don't, I don't know what that is. Yeah, well, uh, from the point of view of a theosophist, the idea of the Ascended Masters, and I wrote an article, uh, Theosophical Mahatmas versus Ascended Masters, uh, versus in the sense of compared. I didn't choose the, the, the title, the, the editor did. But um, Blavatsky mentioned that these enlightened yogis that she met, they form a community, not physically, it's simply that just as Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras, which is one of the basic uh, texts on yoga, he describes the, the existence of what he calls siddhis in Sanskrit, which are psychic powers. Among them is the ability to communicate tele- telepathically and to travel in what today is called astral bodies, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. These are all things that uh, Indian people who know Indian philosophy and religion are very common. So she claimed that her teachers uh, could do th- this and that she could do this to some extent too, mm-hmm. uh, and that they there is a group of enlightened beings that um, are trying to help humanity on the inner planes mainly. There is not this conspiracy theory that they are trying behind the screen. This, the, yeah, it's not the reptilian guys, it's the other no, guys. No, no, no. This is more stimulating our spiritual our spiritual life. And, uh, and Blavatsky sometimes called them masters of wisdom. 
um, but they are people who are born, who die, who have physical bodies, etc. Uh, later on, after um, in the 30s, more or less, some people who were members of the society developed this idea of the ascended masters. They uh, mixed the idea of the, the masters of wisdom in theosophy with the idea of Jesus that ascended in the physical body. So many of them postulate that these masters, and they use the same names that the Blavatsky used for her teachers, that they ascended and in physical body and now, well, I don't know what the idea would be if they are somewhere in heaven with a physical body, I don't know. Yeah. But in the surface, it seems to be talking about the same, uh, but uh, it's actually quite different in many aspects. Although I respect the idea of the ascended masters, it's just that that's not how theosophists look at this subject. And as I said, I wrote an article that is online, anybody can, can see, to point in some of the differences. I, I looked how they described the Ascending Masters and quoted, you know, Blavatsky and others to show the differences. Yeah. Well, there's another, I think, obvious ambiguity when you invoke something like the Great White Brotherhood. It sounds like a clan, either a clan meeting or <laughs> a gathering all the, of all the white wizards from uh, Middle Earth. Yeah. You know, yeah. so it's just like, there's like this, you know, it's like, oh, this is wonderful and magical and also potentially evil. <laughs> yeah, Blavatsky didn't, Blavatsky didn't use the word great white, uh, white brotherhood. She said there are some of these enlightened beings. Uh, there is a community in Tibet that uh, where there are many, many of them. I don't know, many, five, six, I don't know. She, she mentioned a few names that she was trained by these yogis that lived in Tibet. Mm -hmm. She said uh, there are some in India, but they don't live in a community. They live in retreat in a cave or, or forest. There are some in Peru, she said. There are some in Syria, some in Egypt, uh, a few in Europe. Uh, those are, I think, the places where she said that there were some of these enlightened beings. Um, she was asked, what do they do? And she said, well, you would have to be one of them to understand it. But basically, they are trying to stimulate people's souls. They are like the nurses of the souls, uh, trying to nourish the souls uh, so that when the soul incarnates, uh, it's a little more mature. Yeah. So we don't really know what that is. And she said, you know, you couldn't understand it. But that's basically what it is. Uh, later theosophists, some of them use the idea of the, the great white brotherhood. Uh, you know, most of these adepts are not white people, but why they used it, I think, for the idea of the white, you know, magic or something yeah, as opposed sure. to the black. But that, we don't use that term any longer. It's, as you say, it, it just doesn't convey the concept really well. Yeah, it doesn't have the same ring as maybe as it once did. Yeah. Um, all right. So this is the last. I, real quick on that, I, I think there's something interesting, which is that her, I believe, it was her father or maybe her grandfather was a Mason, and some people have wondered if there's a Masonic influence upon this notion, right? So scattered across the whole globe, there is this group of enlightened people with this initiatic uh, sort of, uh, you know, higher spiritual understanding, which at surface level at least sounds kind of Masonic. And so mm -hmm. at least some people have speculated that might be an important influence here as well. Yeah. yeah. Yes, several of the people who formed the Theosophical Society were Masons. And at the beginning, the society was designed with passwords and you know things like that uh, like the masons and it was designed with a few degrees now the work of the society was never ceremonial like the work of the masons is but at the beginning 
it seems that Blavatsky and Olcott, who was the one of the you know the, the first president of the society, they were influenced by that kind of organization, and perhaps they wanted to be more careful about forming something like this that could generate a backlash. But that was dropped very early. I don't think that lasted for more than a year in the society. But certainly there is a lot of um, Masonic influence uh, through the members, especially. And of course, Blavatsky claimed, this is also another of those claims, she claimed that she was a Mason from the Eastern uh, Masonry. And in Isis Unveiled, her first book, she wrote a lot about Masonry and the uh, secrets of Masonry. And she criticized Masonry saying that it had mm, become just a social club. And she was actually given an honorary 33rd degree uh, by one of the authorities of uh, Masonry at the time, uh, because he did appreciate what Blavatsky was trying to do. And he said, I don't know how, but she has Masonic uh, knowledge that no women has. So there, there was some influence from Masonry there. All right, we got one more. This one's a little bit long, so I apologize in advance. Um, but Michael Stowell wanted me to ask you about this particular passage from, I guess it's from The Secret Doctrine, Volume 2. Mankind is obviously divided into God-informed men and lower human creatures. The intellectual difference between the Aryan and other civilized nations and such savages as the South Sea Islanders is inexplicable on any other grounds. No amount of culture nor generations of training in amid civilization could raise such human specimens as the Bushmen, the Vedas of Ceylon, and some African tribes to the same intellectual level as the Aryans, the Semites, and the Turanesians, so-called. The, quote, sacred spark is missing in them, and it is they who are the only inferior races on the globe. Now happily, owing to the wise adjustment of nature, whichever works in that direction, fast dying out. Verily, mankind is, quote, of one blood, but not of the same essence. We are the hothouse, artificially quickened plants in nature, having in us a spark which in them is latent. And then he has a uh, sort of comment here. Mm -hmm. um, Considering the terrible wars and global environmental damage perpetrated by, quote, God-informed men, does the mystic believe that the forest dwellers like the Baca, the ethnic group inhabiting the southeastern rainforest of Cameroon, Northern Republic of Congo, Northern Gabon, and Southwestern Central Africa Republic, a hunter-gatherer people that establishes temporary camps of huts constructed of bowed branches covered in large leaves. Are these lower human creatures more respectful of this finite planet on which we live and all the life with which we share it? I, I think this question touches a little bit on what Mark was asking a little bit before. And some of the things we talked about was how maybe theosophical ideas may have funded mm -hmm. you know, um, un, unsavory ideas, Nazism and so on. Yeah, yeah. To understand what, what Blavatsky meant by this, you, you need to understand her anthropology. One, one difficulty that we have when trying to understand this is that she never refers to this in terms of um, um, static stages. When she says how humanity came into being, she says, we didn't start all human beings uh, from the same level of evolution, because the Earth is not the first planet f where souls are evolving. Uh, there were previous planets, and those who finished their evolution, they don't incarnate any longer as humans. But the souls that didn't finish their human journey, they have to incarnate again in another planet to finish it. 
So these people will be more advanced than the, the newly developed souls that developed from the animal kingdom in that planet. Uh, and there are always some souls that are not yet completely developed at the time to be either animals or to be uh, human beings. There are some like intermediate stages, let's say. So when evol evolution starts, you have some people who are mm, highly evolved just because they have been evolving for longer. This is a question of age. It's like saying a child is not an adult. A child cannot take on the responsibilities of an adult, no matter how much you push that child to do it. That doesn't mean that the child is not going to evolve the idea or grow, grow up. The idea is that it's just a question of time. So what Blavatsky is saying here is that she viewed that these particular tribes, which at the time, it's not the same, in the same state that they are now. You know, I, I researched into this and read some papers by anthropologists, and they were saying that these, several of these tribes that Blavatsky mentions, they didn't, uh, they didn't have numbers. They had one, two, and many, and they were very primitive intellectually. Uh, but now these tribes are, because of, you know, mixing and all this, uh, they, they are completely different to the way they were at the time of Blavatsky. Uh, but what Blavatsky is saying there is, in these souls, they have not gotten yet to the point where the spark of mentality is fully awakened. This is why they live in that kind of uh, community. And with incarnations, as all of us did, they will awaken that, that spark. Uh, and then they will be born in societies where they stimulate more their, their mentality. Remember that Blavatsky viewed uh, the world as a school with different uh, school rooms, and it's a dynamic thing. We are all growing. Uh, so that's more or less, you know, there are many more justifications to understand this concept, but that is the, the idea that these are souls that are just beginning their evolution. And again, this has to be uh, understood against the background of the, the idea of unity and universal brotherhood, etc. Because the conclusion from this, from a theosophist, and you see it in many books, is that our duty with souls that are younger is not to exploit them, is to help them, as you do with a child, is to protect them. So even though, you know, you can classify that as, as racism in the sense that there are differences between some races, uh, it is, uh, you know, a beneficent racism, if you want to classify it as that, we don't <laughs> see it as racism. Okay. Just in the sense of different ages of the souls. Hmm. Uh, but it's far more, uh, that's one statement, I think it's the only statement that she made about that, against a hundred of statements where she talks about the unity and uh, we are all together in this, etc. Yeah, no, sure. Yeah, I never would have. Uh, we wouldn't talk in that way either. Uh, well, and I, and I wouldn't have known to to ask you about this passage unless Michael had brought it. I wonder how he became aware of it. But no, if you go to Wikipedia, this is typically quoted. Oh. But I tell you, you interview a hundred percent of theosophists, not a single of them will interpret that in the racist way that it sounds. But as you say, all this can be is I understand how all that you know can be yeah. very easily used to sure. justify political agendas and cruelty yeah. and all that. Yeah. It's just interesting to interrogate the way that an evolutionary spiritual model, uh, a teleological model, then provides this kind of rationalization 
mm-hmm. um, which I can certainly see how it's not intended to be racist, but I think there's, I, I'm, I think there is a sort of latent racism <laughs> to it, but I, I think that's not so much of critique as, a, as an acknowledgement that there, again, like to maybe end where we began, you know, the, the history that we've inherited is inextricably racial. And so how one negotiates with that is going to vary a lot on a lot of different things. And in this case, on her understanding of spiritual metaphysics, yeah. <laughs> which I think is fascinating. Yeah, it's. I mean, if you have an evolutionary theory, this is inevitable. You will have specimens of whatever, a plant or whatever, that are less evolved than others, you know. But it's also because of the lack of familiarity, because we could say colleges are elitists. You cannot go to college. Not, not everybody can go to college. They have to undergo a previous education and they have to get certain qualifications, etc. And if we were to say, hey, let us open college to anybody, I don't know if the institution would survive. Uh, if a family is also elitist, I mean, theosophy is, is comfortable with the idea of diversity, as I said at the beginning. Uh, knowing that everything is fluid, no, knowing that it's not that a human being is a frozen individual that is this or that. It's a process of growth and diversity exists. And yes, things that we cannot access now, we will access later. Um, and there are others who can access things you can't, and there are others who cannot access things that you can yeah. just by nature. So that's I know that that is problematic, but from the theosophical view, I mean, we are comfortable accepting that you know, in that way. It's interesting because, again, again, there's a tension here, right? At least for me, I want to be affirmative of difference. But at the same time, I, there are certain kinds of differences that I think maybe we shouldn't accept, right? Mm-hmm. And, like, and I'm only asking this because you invoked it. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about universal education? What if we did make college just available for, for anyone? Yeah, no, no, no. I think that would be great. Uh, but the the what I was saying, you cannot have a seven year old regular boy or girl oh, going yeah. to college. <laughs> sure. There is a process of education. There is a process of growth that you go through until you can access college. You know, I yeah. come from Argentina where college is free, and mm-hmm. I think that's a great system if the society can sustain it. Um, but no, I was meaning more in the sense of. The, uh, everything is is can be interpreted as elitist when when there are prerequisites before you can do something else and life life right. is full of that. Yeah, no, that's fair. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a really interesting conversation. I'm really glad we had a chance yeah, to yeah, uh, enjoyed it to, to speak to you. And um, if people want to get in touch with you, how how do they go about doing sure. that or learn, learning more about uh, theosophy and so on? Yeah, they can write to me. Um, my my email is just my name, pablosender at gmail.com. And, I'm, you know, I, I'm constantly getting emails from people who, because my videos are there online. And so it's very common for people that I don't know to write to me. And I'm very busy, but I always try to make, you know, the, the, the effort to, to answer everybody. So if anybody wants to ask anything, feel free to, to write to me. Awesome. Thanks for, um, you know, giving us some of your time and, and sharing your thoughts with us. It was really appreciated. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for the interview and uh, the conversation. I enjoyed it. And whenever you want us to be back for a conversation, I'm always available. We might take you up on that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, too. All right, man. Thanks. Have a great day. All right. You, too. Bye-bye. Bye.
thanks to Pablo and the Theosophical Society for setting that up. Thanks to you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Peace.